today we continue reading in the book of Titus, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5 and read through to verse 16. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is God's word. Thanks, Ashley. Um, let me add my welcome to Mark's. Uh, like he said, my name is Cale, and I lead our discipleship ministry here at Inspire. Um, let me pray for us before we get started. Father, thank you so much um, for your word, uh, for this letter from Paul to Titus that um, encourages the church. Teach us by your word to live graceful lives um, today. Amen. In 1911, there were two groups of explorers who, were, who set out on a race to be the first to reach the South Pole. The first one was led by a Norwegian guy named Roald Munson, and he did extensive research and planning, getting ready for the trip. And he decided that we're going to take dog sleds for transport. They uh, pre-stocked supply depots on their way, and they planned for plenty of rest. And so they reached the South Pole with pretty much no trouble. The other team was led by a British naval officer named Robert Scott, who basically did everything opposite. He kind of rushed through the planning, decided to take motorized sleds um, and ponies instead of dogs. And the, the motor stopped running after the first five days, and they had to kill the ponies a few days later. And so that left the people to push the sleds. So they're exhausted, they're short on food and water, they didn't have proper clothing, so they all got uh, frostbite. So they did reach the South Pole, but they were a month late, a month after a Munson's team, and none of them survived the return journey. They all died in the frigid wilderness of the Antarctic. So it's a pretty extreme example, but I think we all know that leadership can make a huge difference. Even at, at work, if you have a good boss, you feel encouraged to come to work. You want to make a difference. You, your ambition and your creativity is thriving. 
But if you have a bad boss, it's like it's incredibly draining. You don't want to come to work. Your ambition, your creativity is just crushed and sucked out of you. So today we're going to look at how God has a good plan for our leadership in the church, the church in Crete, and what that means for us today. You heard in the video that the culture in Crete was incredibly corrupt. They have this, this uh, pretty harsh quote from a Cretan philosopher, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Sounds pretty harsh, right? But one ancient, uh, one ancient historian said, it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous, treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. So think of the Pirates of the Caribbean films, Mad Max, Fury Road, people lying and betraying each other, society completely out of control. It's into this culture that Paul sends a letter to Titus, so that the church will grow in the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. If you were here last week, you saw that chapter 1, verse 1. It's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And throughout this whole letter, he focuses on this link between the two. You can't separate the knowledge of the truth and godly behavior. So God's plan is for all of Crete to glorify God and see the beauty of the gospel because it causes the Christians to live very different lives. They stand out in the culture because they know the truth about God and they know the truth through Jesus Christ. But also, it makes a real difference in the way that they live. They stand out because they act different. They don't lie and cheat. They don't steal and betray each other. They care about their families. They love their neighbors. And that's what we want to here at Inspire St. James. We want to live differently because we know the truth about Jesus. But we also want to live different lives uh, where we care about our communities. We want our lives to change. We want to become the kind of people who have godly character and godly behavior. And Paul says you can't separate those two. It's the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. So how can the church in Crete get there? And what can we learn from it? Paul says, to become a grace-filled church, you need to appoint grace-filled elders. I think it's great that God has a plan for our leadership. Paul says appoint elders in every town, so they're not self-proclaimed leaders, they're appointed. And he says appointing elders will bring order to the church. So he's not talking about order like when to stand up and when to sit down, or when, we, when do we start and how long do we go, that kind of order. He's talking about, again, the knowledge of truth that leads to Godliness. He doesn't want people to be confused about what God is really like. And he doesn't want people to be confused about what it looks like to live godly lives in their city. In this way, elders really are a gift to the church. So he goes on to list some qualifications for elders. And it may not be the kinds of things you'd expect for leaders. Paul doesn't say they need to be charismatic speakers or have innovative church growth strategies, although those things might be good. The two main things he says for elders to lead the church are to stand for what's right and to stand against what's wrong. First, we're going to look at how they stand for what's right. So the church needs elders who stand for what's right in their own lives. Paul says, look at their behavior, look at their character. In verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer manages God's household. Paul's concerned with how they lead their own family life. Because as an elder, he's going to be leading God's family, God's household. So this is a great test of leadership. How does a person behave at home? Is he faithful to his wife?
wife? Does he, can he manage his household? Does he raise his kids well? How would you expect a person to pastor a congregation if they can't pastor and love their family well? Now, he's not saying that if a person's children grow up and decide not to follow Christ, that he's not fit to be a leader. But he is saying that while they're young, while they live at home, you should raise them to know the gospel and to live godly lives at home. Then in verse 7 he says, an elder must be blameless. And blameless, you know, doesn't mean perfect because we all live by God's grace. But it does mean a transparent desire to obey God in all areas of life. So if someone is clearly rebellious in one area, not repenting of sin, then they're not qualified to be an elder. He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Do you see the familiar pitfalls of sex, power, and money? With sex, is he faithful to one wife? With power, he's not overbearing or violent. And money does not pursue dishonest gain. But instead, he must be hospitable, he's welcoming to people, one who loves what's good, it comes from the heart, he's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. For the church in Crete, this would be huge. Like, can you imagine how this would stand out? Imagine being in a society where lying is the accepted norm. Wouldn't you feel like sometimes you have to be overbearing just to get things done? Is it possible to live upright lives in a culture like that? Well, they needed elders to have an example to look to of what it looks like to live a godly life. This is great news for us, too. The church needs leaders with integrity. And by integrity, I mean consistent between what they believe and what they do. The church doesn't need hypocritical leaders. We need people to look to for examples of what living a godly life looks like in London today. Is it possible to be faithful to one life, to one wife, or to be celibate while you're single? What does that even look like? Is it possible to be upright, self-control, disciplined? We need elders to stand for what's right by living godly lives as evidence of their faith and as examples to the church. Next, in verse 9, we see the elders who stand for what is right in the gospel. He must hold firm to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. So the elder first needs to hold firmly to the gospel for himself. Hold firmly means to cling to or to, to cherish something. So hold firm means when all the circumstances of life and question everything else, you hold firm to the truth of the gospel. And it's not some vague truth. See, he says, hold firm to the trustworthy message as you have been taught. So what message is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. When we say the gospel, in short, what we mean is God offers new life by grace through Jesus Christ. So God offers new life. He says new life really is possible. Abundant life. Life with deep intimacy with God. A life free from the sins of the past. Free from guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Free to live Godly lives. And He offers His new life as a free gift by grace. So that means you don't have to earn it, like Mark said earlier. You don't have to turn your life around and clean yourself up but simply trust in Jesus that He has earned this new life for you. By dying for you on the cross, He put to death your sin, and by raising back to life, He gives you this new life. 
So that's what I mean when we say the gospel. God's free offer of new life by grace through faith in Jesus. An elder must desperately cling to this truth. It keeps him from becoming arrogant because he knows he needs this new life. But it also keeps him from despair because he knows God offers it for free. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught so that, here's the reason, so that he can encourage others with sound doctrine. So he's to hold firm to the gospel for himself so that he can hold forth the gospel for other people. Notice it doesn't say so he can encourage others with a pat on the back or an optimistic attitude, even though those are nice. But he says his primary way of encouraging is to point to Jesus and God's grace shown on the cross. For example, you may come to one of the leaders here and say, listen, I'm, I'm really struggling with addiction to pornography. I keep trying to stop, put all the filters on my computer, but I, I just can't win. I feel trapped and I don't want to give up. Now, a leader shouldn't say, wow, you know, sexual sin is really bad. You need to stop that. God hates it. Just do whatever you can to stop. That wouldn't be helpful. But also, an elder shouldn't say, you know, we all have struggles. Don't be so hard on yourself. It's fine. I wouldn't be good either. But what he should say is, it sounds like you see how harmful this sin is. That It seems like it's freedom, but really it enslaves you. You can't overcome sin by trying harder. But Jesus has defeated sin and his power over you on the cross. He's forgiven you for the mistakes that you've made. So turn to him and trust him. Look to Him for true, for true satisfaction, and He'll lead you to new life, free from slavery and sin. That's what it means to encourage with the gospel. Recently, I read one of these uh, memorials over here for the first time, and I thought it was really significant. I wanted to read it to you. It says, Near this place lie the remains of Reverend William Selden, the first to be buried in the crypt here. He who, with indefatigable industry, effort, and the purest religious zeal, having devoted 33 years of his life to the respective duties of curate and minister in his parish. He died this month 228 years ago. And then the next part I thought was really beautiful. It says, as a preacher, he gave to divine truths all the force of human eloquence. As a man, he gave to the precepts of Christianity all the force of human example. So as a preacher, he taught the trustworthy message of the gospel with all of his ability. And as a man, he was an example of Christian behavior. What a great memorial that is. That's what an elder is meant to be. So they needed this encouragement in Crete, and so do we in London. So I think we should give thanks for our eldership here in Inspire that does live as good Christian examples, and they do encourage us with the gospel. Not just telling us what we want to hear, or telling us just to try harder, but encouraging, reminding us of the gospel. That we're more sinful than we think we are, but we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we could ever imagine. So when you're feeling down or discouraged, go to the elders here. Be encouraged by the truth. Look to them for an example. So we see that elders need to stand for what's right. Also, elders need to stand against what's wrong. In verse 9 it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. I know standing for what's right and standing 
against what's wrong might sound like kind of the same thing. But you've all been on teams, either at work or in sport, where you've got the one guy who just complains about everything, but never offers any solutions. You don't want that guy to be the leader. But at the same time, you've got the person who's naively optimistic, they just want everybody to get along, but they never address when somebody's doing something wrong or going the wrong direction. You don't want to be led by that either. Paul said the point elders who both stand for what's right and stand against what's wrong. In, in verse 10, we see why. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. We see the reality of the situation. There are false teachers, and it's not just difference of opinion. They're disrupting whole households. And Paul said that has to stop. Now you may flinch when he says they must be silenced. Because in our current age of tolerance, it's wrong to tell someone that they're wrong. If you catch the irony of that statement. But just a couple things I want to say about that. The first is that he's talking about false teachers within the church. So he's not saying silence people of other religions or silence people with different political opinions. He's talking specifically about wrong teachings in the church that distort who God is and how we relate to Him. The second thing about tolerance is in the engineering world, tolerance means an allowable margin for error. So say you, you need a beam that's two meters long and they cut it and it's one centimeter too short. You say, okay, we can live with that error. But the more important things get, the tighter your tolerance is, the less error that you can live with. So take an IKEA end table, you know, the little square IKEA end tables. If the screws are off by a couple millimeters, it's not a big deal. Everybody knows this IKEA is going to have a little, a little wobble in it. <laughs> but imagine if you're designing some robotic equipment that's used for medical procedures. A couple millimeters off could cost somebody their life. So you have to have a very small tolerance when you're talking about something that important. So you can see why tolerance in lots of areas of life is, is really important. We need it to get along with people we disagree with, especially in a city as diverse as London. But in the church, if we believe wrong things about God, then we're threatening the very basis of our hope and our eternal life in Christ. So we have to have a, a smaller tolerance. We have to be very precise to what we're talking about because it's a matter of life and death. So what is this false teach teaching that he's talking about? He doesn't say exactly what it is, but we can see there's a distinct Jewish element to it. He calls out the circumcision group, Jewish myths, and human rules. So they're probably teaching something like, if you have the signs of the Jewish religion, then God will accept you and then you can live however you want. Which would be really popular in Crete, where they're used to living however they want. But look at the effect. This destroying whole households, whole families. You see how destructive wrong beliefs about God can be? Also, see the contrast between in the, in the first part of the passage when he said, the households of the good elders, they flourish. He loves his wife and his children. But these te bad teachers are destroying households. Then we get to this really harsh quote, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. When I first read that, I thought, man, that sounds kind of racist, doesn't it? Just because they're all Cretans. But he isn't, he isn't saying all Cretans are liars because clearly he's writing to the, his brothers and sisters in Christ who are Cretans. But he is critiquing their culture, which we saw before is incredibly corrupt. 
But see how he does it. He does it by quoting one of their own philosophers. So imagine if, if I stand up here and start critiquing the British culture. Even if what I said is true, it would be hard to take it from an American, you know. But if one of your own people stands up and says, listen guys, we, we have some serious problems, we need to work on it, it's a lot easier to hear. So that's what he's doing. He's saying, even your own people recognize there's big problems in Crete. So he said, because of the culture, because of the corruption, rebuke them sharply. If a child is about to run into the road, the parent rebukes them sharply, right? Not because they think they're morally superior or they want to make them feel bad, but because they want them to be safe. They don't want them to run out in the road. So they want them to know what's right and they want them to not do what's wrong. This is what Paul's aim is when he's, when he's saying they should rebuke false teachers, so that they would be sound in the faith, so that they'll know what's right and they'll do what's right. So don't be discouraged by a rebuke, but realize what's behind it. A rebuke is meant to confront something wrong, wrong teaching or wrong actions, in the hope that we might change. You see the compassion and hope when Paul says, rebuke them so that they will be sound in the faith. There's still hope for them, and they won't be misled. A rebuke will almost always feel uncomfortable, but from a grace-filled elder, a rebuke is a good thing. So an elder needs to stand against and rebuke wrong teaching, and they also need to stand against wrong behavior. It says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. To the pure, all things are pure. It doesn't mean that if you're Christian, you can do whatever you want to do. Because that would be like the, the false teachers were saying. What he is saying is it's similar to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. He said, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So a person who's been changed by Jesus is purified in their heart, and it will show up in the way that they act. Their life will reflect that. Remember the good elder in verse 8, he loves what is good. It comes from the heart. But someone who rebels against God, it corrupts every part of their lives. You see again that link between the truth about the gospel and godly behavior. You may not be able to judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a tree by its fruit. He says, these are the ones who claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. This hypocrisy, he says, is detestable, especially in Christian leaders. Now, in our age of tolerance, again, it might be uncomfortable to say elders should stand against wrong behavior, but how hurtful is it if you've been wrong and no one stands up for you, and no one says, this isn't okay? I don't know, maybe some of you have experienced pastors who use shame to gain power and control over, over others. Maybe you've seen pastors distort the gospel to bring in more people and more money. Maybe you've seen some cover-up sins to protect the ministry. I'm sorry if you've experienced any of that. It is wrong, and I'm sure it's confusing, and I know it's hurtful. You can see why he says this is detestable. Not only are they taking advantage of people and using people and lying people, but they're making them think that God is the same way. They claim to know God, but deny Him by their actions. Paul says that elders should not seek dishonest gain. 
but prosperity preachers who justify private jets and lavish lifestyles, aren't they denying Jesus who gave up his riches and became poor so that we might become rich in God? Paul says elders shouldn't be overbearing and violent, but people who seek more power for themselves, aren't they denying God who gave up his power, became powerless? Jesus endured violence on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And he gives us his power by his spirit. So we need elders to stand against this kind of action. If you move away from Inspire St. James, or maybe you're a guest today, and you're looking for a new church, make sure it has elders who stand for what's right and stand against what's wrong. And if Peter and Mark stop preaching the gospel or start covering up sin, you should speak up about it. Go to the other elders. And, and if nothing changes, if it continues, you should leave. Because I think that's what this saying is. You, should be, you need to be at a church that has elders who point you to Jesus. This is why these qualifications are so such a high bar for elders, because they're meant to be like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of godly behavior. He never sinned. He's the perfectly, he perfectly teaches the truth about who God is, because he in himself is the very image of God. Jesus stands against wrong teaching, and he rebukes the Pharisees. They claim to know God, but he says they and he stands against every wrong action when he takes on the sins of the world and dies on the cross and rises again so that we might have new lives in him. We need elders who are following Jesus and pointing us to Jesus, who stand for what's right in their behavior, their character. They stand for what's right by holding firm and holding forth the gospel, and who stand against what's wrong, rebuking wrong teaching and wrong action. And it's a good gift Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good gift of elders, um, that you care about our leadership, and that you give us a perfect example in Jesus Christ. Help us to be humble enough to accept your um, leadership and authority in our lives, and help us be thankful for good elders and good leaders. Amen.